Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, here's a statistic for you. Are you ready? The Bible more than any other book, is shoplifted more than any other book. That's right. The Bible, compared to every other book out there, is stolen more than any other book. That, there's a lot wrong with that statistic. Here's a book about honesty, and of course it says within its pages you shouldn't steal, and people are stealing it. Now, I know we don't like stats like that, hear things like that, especially when it relates to people in their Bibles. We don't like the glaring contradiction of things like that. But I just wonder, for those that actually do read the Bible, because I'm sure that's what you think. Don't those thieves read what they're stealing? For those of us that do read the Bible, I just wonder if there's ever a glaring contradiction that people see in us. And I'm not talking about the basics of just being honest and not stealing. I hope you haven't been shoplifting much this week. I'm talking about the overwhelming and repeated call in the scripture for Bible readers to be loving and generous. Obviously, the Bible says so much about how my relationship as a follower of Christ is supposed to be different with my material resources than the people around me. That's what the Bible would call for, that I should be, as a Christian, more open-handed, more generous to other people than anyone else around me. I claim to follow Christ. The Bible keeps talking about Christ followers giving and being generous. I just wonder, am I really perceived as the most generous person in my extended family? Am I the most caring and generous person in my office? Am I the most caring and generous person in my neighborhood? Is that my reputation? Or is there a gap between what the Bible says we should be and how we actually live. Well, I think at Christmas time, it's good for us to make sure when it comes to that particular concern that we close the gap. Because Christmas is a time, if there's anything that would say to us in a profound and clear way, it would be that the coming of Jesus Christ into this world is the most generous act of the Father giving his son to us and the most generous act of the son toward us in giving his life for our sin. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to love and to give. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that God sent his son to solve your most profound problem, that my sin and your sin could be dealt with, expunged, expiated, removed, could be settled and atoned for by Jesus Christ. And that is the most incredibly generous thing that God could ever do for us sinners. And so I want to turn you to a very non-traditional Christmas text. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to have you look at the last three verses of this chapter. And if you happen to be a Sunday school graduate and you know your Bibles, you can look at this section and say, oh yeah, this is where Paul for two chapters talks about giving. There's a historical situation where there was a need and Paul has the gumption to say to them, listen, I think you guys in Corinth, Corinth, by the way, is the orange county of the ancient world. 
They lived in Achaia, this place in Achaia. They had money. It was the cross-section of the ancient world in terms of commerce and trade. And it was a wealthy part of the world. And here was this church that was above average in income. And he says, listen, I'm going to ask you to be giving here to a need that we have in Jerusalem for the Jewish church there that's being persecuted, the Christians in Jerusalem. And after all that talk, and it's going to feel like we're in the middle of a conversation we're about to pop into here, it's going to sound like, well, we need some context. And we'll get that context. But he ramps up into the thing that should always be the motivation for all that we do. And that is that God is our ultimate example, that we reflect and we call ourselves Christians. It was used as a pejorative term in the early church. They said, oh, you're Christians, little Christ. You're going around like Christ, the despised one of the ancient world. But we take that as a, a, a badge of honor. We are trying to be like Christ. We are trying to reflect Christ. And so he ends in talking about their need to be generous with, look at how generous God has been to us. So let's pop into this. I know it's in the middle of the flow of the argument. Just three verses this morning, verses 13, 14, and 15, 2 Corinthians 9. I'll read them for you from the English Standard Version. It begins this way. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. That's a lot, and it's hard to figure out if you don't know what he's talking about. Well, look at all that, but we get it. It's about generosity. It's about giving. It's about people saying, oh, yeah, I can see that you're not just talk. It's not lip service. You, you are a real Christian. You are doing what the Bible says, and you're living this out in ways that has been discussed in the last two chapters, generosity. Well, for all the confusion that might exist in that, like you need some context, there's not much context you need for this, verse 15. We can understand this little phrase. He ends with this statement, and it's a ringing bell at the end of this discussion. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He's talking about gift giving. You guys giving, contributing, being generous because you care for people. Let's stop and think about the gold standard here. Thanks be to God. Let's just stop and thank God for a minute, you Corinthians, for his inexpressible gift. You can't even contain it. It's be hard for you to describe. That's a good place for all of us to start, particularly at Christmas time. There's a good Christmas verse. Doesn't look like a Christmas verse, but we ought to be thankful to God for his inexpressible gift. You can't even describe what a big gift it was for Christ to be sent so that you would not be penalized for the sins that you've committed. That's an amazing gift. It is, and it builds on verse 14. It is the grace of God upon you. It is the thing that God did that he did not need to do, that you did not earn. He mercifully and graciously provided what you needed. It was a gift. You don't earn it. It's a gift. And that's an amazing truth. Let's start with that this Christmas time. If you're taking notes, number one, I want you to reconsider what you've been given and the thing that you've been given, even if you are living as a destitute, impoverished person right now under an underpass somewhere. If you sit here as a forgiven Christian, I want to remind you what you've been given. You have been given forgiveness that came at a very, very high price. God said, I will take your sin, the things that you've done that have not measured up to God's great standards. God gave you everything. He asks you to obey him. He is the God. He's the rule maker. He's the judge. He says to you, live this way. And you and I have decided not to live that way. And every 
transaction that we've committed against the holy God, every transgression, every iniquity, every act of wickedness, every evil word, all of those things, God said, I am going to pay for those. Not by putting the penalty of your sin on Judas, on Satan, on Nebuchadnezzar, on Asher Bonner Paul, on, on, on some terrible person in the Bible, on Balaam the, the prophet. No, I'm going to put all of the sins that you've committed on my son. I'm going to have to have my son, the second person that God had, take on humanity and live as though he were the sinner that you are, and I'm going to punish him. You want to get close to that kind of, of, of price? Talk about a big extravagant gift. I mean, I guess we'd have to go back to people that take people they love and are willing for the love of God to give them up. And that's not even a good comparison because God is holy, God is great, God is amazing, and here are people out of love giving up someone they love, like Hannah coming and saying, God, I ask for this child. I love this child, but I love you more. And I know you're the giver of all these things. I'm going to bring little Samuel here to the worship center. And I'm going to let Eli raise him at the worship center. And I'm going to give this child. Can you imagine you've just weaned your child, your first child. And you've said, here, God, here's a gift. It's my son. Well, that's one thing, I suppose, to walk away tearful, leaving your son behind in a worship center. But I guess if you want the most poignant picture, and it's a head-scratcher in the Bible, you'll have to go all the way back in your mind to Genesis 22 when it wasn't just leaving him at the church for the rest of his childhood. How about when Abraham took his son up that mountain on Mount Moriah, bound him on an altar, and was willing to raise a knife because God said, give me your son, sacrifice your son, your only son. This God that hates human sacrifice is all of a sudden now taking the patriarch of faith, the establishment of the one who's going to build the family of the Israelites and say, take Isaac, your son, your only son, the son that you love and sacrifice. And that's exactly what God does. And Abraham, you want to talk about doing an amazing thing to sacrifice what he loves, the person that he loves, he does it for God. He lifts that knife up. And of course, God is not going to let him do this. But for all intents and purposes, Abraham said, I will give you my son because I love you. Now think about that. That's as close as we can get. And yet here is a human being, a sinful human being, giving his sinful son to a perfect and holy God. Now let's reverse that. A perfectly holy father with a perfectly holy son looking at sinners and rebellious people like you and me and saying, I'm going to send my son and have him suffer and kill him so that you can be forgiven. That's an amazing gift. That's an unthinkable gift. That's an inexpressible gift. In your Bibles, next to that word inexpressible, I'd like you to write down Acts chapter 15, verse 3. This is the only time this word inexpressible the Greek word that underlies the English translation occurs in the New Testament. But there are a couple of occurrences of this word without the negation in front of it, because that's all it is. Even our word, inexpressible, we can tear that apart and say, expressible, I can express something. Inexpressible means I can't express it. Well, that Greek word that translates expressible, if you will, is translated in Acts chapter 15, verse 3, when Paul and Barnabas are coming back from their missionary journey, and they, here's how it's translated without the negation, with three English words. Here's how, it comes, here's how it is in the English Standard Version, verse 3. It says, they described in detail. Those three English words translate that one word, described in detail. Now this word says, here's one thing you can't do about this gift. You cannot describe in detail how amazing this gift is. I mean, you can try to describe it. Matter of fact, I would encourage you at Christmas to try and describe it. 
Try and express with thanksgiving the greatness of this gift that God has given you. But if you tried, you'd fail because you could never put your arms around what an amazing thing it is that God would take a sinner like you and like me and send his own son to suffer so that you and I wouldn't have to. With that in mind, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If I hear the word inexpressible and I start to think about what that means, describe in detail and, oh, you can't describe it in detail. You should try, but you can't. It makes me think of this passage, and perhaps your mind went here too. Paul is praying in Ephesians chapter 3 for the Christians that he's writing to in this letter, and he says, I'm praying for you. You can start glancing at verse 14. I'm bowing my knees before the Father. Verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named according to the riches of the glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power, verse 16, in his spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a lot of wordy doxology kind of language about he's got good things in mind for what he's praying for for these these Christians. Here's the purpose clause, though. Here's one thing he wants in this prayer, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, I want you, to be people that are known to love. You need to be people that love, genuinely concerned for other people. Love. And I know, just like the passage in 2 Corinthians 9, you're going to love other people and give to other people. The gold standard is God. And in this case, he says, yeah, you want to love? The gold standard is Christ. Verse 18, I pray that you may have strength to comprehend. You need supernatural strength. We need people praying for you to think, to comprehend with all the saints, because every Christian should, not just pastors, not just commentary writers, not just theologians, everyone. We should, with all the saints, try really hard. We should have the strength from God that we would know what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth is, and to know the love of Christ. There's the gold standard. That, here it is, surpasses knowledge. You could never really explain it all in detail. You could never get your arms fully around it. You can write tomes and volumes and systematic theologies about the love of God, but you're never going to really get the fullness of what an amazing, crazy thing it is that God would take you, a sinner, that he should ride off into outer darkness and say, you don't get any of my gifts because of your sin, and instead he lets his son suffer. He causes his son to suffer so that you can be forgiven. Oh, if you could just catch that, you'd be filled with the fullness of God. That would be like the ultimate spirituality, to know the love of Christ, what is the breadth and the height and the length and the depth. That's a great passage. And it reminds me that that is one of the things that you will be called to fixate on in eternity. I know eternity scares you sometimes because you think about, I don't know, it could be a boring worship service. That's what all the atheists say. I don't want to go there anyway. A bunch of cronies and worship and God. And I'm not into that egomaniac of God. I just, and you can start to think, oh man, it's just going to be one long you know, hymn sing. And I don't know if that I want to go there. But listen, you are going to be enamored with the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Turn back to chapter one of Ephesians. And I want to show you as he thinks about the amazing privilege of you being forgiven. And the more when you get into his presence, you can see what a huge thing it is that you've been given grace. You're going to be called to fixate on that, to to ruminate on that, to express that. Again, he's praying in verse 3 of chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, which you don't deserve, I don't deserve, in the heavenly places. You haven't got it yet, but you're heading there. Even as he chose us in him, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, all part of his plan, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. How's that possible? Right, only in Christ. And he's about to say that. In love, he's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he's gonna make me unholy and blameful. He's gonna make me holy and blameless. He's gonna get that done. And all of that's gonna happen according to the outworking of his plan. In Christ, he's gonna do that. And it's all going to be, underline this now, verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. You are going to be focused on fixated on and working to express the inexpressible to the praise of his amazing, glorious grace. Which, by the way, he didn't just give you a sample of. He didn't give you a taste of. It's like Costco where you get a little little taste of it at the end of the cap there. Here, have a little of this. Try a sample. There's no sample. He doused you with it. He lavished this upon you. And he did it with his eyes open in all wisdom and insight. He knew who you were. He knew the sins you've committed. He knows how unworthy you are. He did it in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery. And you should be mystified by it. The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he, here's a Christmas phrase, which he set forth in Christ. Christ was born in Bethlehem to live the life you should have lived, to die outside the walls of Jerusalem, the suffering punishment of just wrath that you and I should have suffered, all of that set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things eventually in him, things in heaven and on earth, the grace of God. We tried to briefly put that on display last week with kids singing about the rescue. You've been rescued, but it didn't just come with a tank full of gas in a chopper that sends down a line and picks you up. It came at the cost of the perfect son of God. And if that doesn't grip you, then you're not thinking straight. You don't deserve it. If I was willing to kill my children so that you could live, I bet you'd think that through the rest of your life as an amazing thing that I would save your temporal life by killing my children. You would say, well, that's amazing that I would live and they would die. This is so much more than that. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of God, that God would love you so much that he would give his son for you is an amazing gift. And you receive it by faith. You grab it by faith. We need to reconsider that at Christmas. That's the whole point. He laid aside everything in the privileges and comforts of heaven so that you and I as sinners could be clothed in Christ, made fully qualified to have all the blessings of Christ in the next life. That's unbelievable. And he gives you everything else. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Some commentators look at this passage and say, well, it doesn't really say what the, what the gift is, you know, could include the gift of how prosperous those Corinthians were. Well, that's true, and that is true, but that's not really what's on the forefront of the mind of the apostle here. Clearly, the Spirit's wanting us to remember the surpassing grace of God that we've received as Christians. But if you want to step back and think in those terms, you might as well. I mean, even the world starts to think, well, I'm glad I got a family, I got money, I got a roof over my head, I got more clo- you know, clothes in the closet than I need, more food in the pantry than I can eat. Yes, every good gift comes from God. And so I recognize that we are sitting here as recipients of the inexpressible gift of God that starts with salvation and works its way back to every single thing, even digesting your breakfast in your stomach this morning and being clothed in your right mind. All of that is a gift from God. He gives us life and breath and everything else. God is the giver of all good things. And you ought to consider what he's given us 
And never say, as it says in Deuteronomy 8.17, Deuteronomy 8.17, that we would somehow say in our heart that either we deserve it or we earned it, that my power and my might have gotten me the things that I got. Are you doing better than other people right now in your life? You're doing better than people in other countries? You're doing better than people at other points in the chronological distance of history? Well, yeah, you might be, but don't ever. It says beware that you don't think this is your doing. Right? Every brain cell that works right, every talent you have, every gift you've been given is the pure grace of God. What do you have, Paul said to the Corinthians, that you have not received? He said that to a bunch of Orange County first century people. What do you have that you haven't received? And if you did receive it as a gift of God, why do you boast like you didn't receive it? Like somehow you earned it or you got it or you're entitled to it. Think about what you've been given. And I would say as verse 15 starts, you ought to try to express it. You ought to be thankful. Thanks be to God is a call for us to work to be thankful. Please be thankful this Christmas for what Christ did for you, which starts with your salvation And then every other good thing in the good column and asset column of your life that God has granted you, that's a good place to start. It's why, by the way, Christians, more than anyone else, should reflect that generosity in their lives, which is the context of these two chapters. And so we've got two verses to represent the two chapters. Here we have an approval of this service that people, verse 13, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession. You say it with your mouth that you're all a part of the good news, the gospel of Christ. And the generosity, here's the outworking of it, the generosity of your contribution for them, these people that are going to get this gift, and for all others, because you're not just giving to the Christians in Jerusalem, you're giving to all kinds of you. You're generous people. And that's an, ex- that's an extension of the fact that you have a real relationship with God, that you love God. As 1 John three sixteen says, echoing John three sixteen, I know the numbers came centuries later, but how poetic it is that 1 John 3.16 echoes John 3.16 and John 3.16 says, God loved us so he gave his son. 1 John 3.16 says, hey, if he laid down his life, gave his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for everyone else. And then the next verse, verse 17 says, and think about what you can give. Think about it. If you see your brother in need and you have the means to meet that need, listen, if you close your heart to him and you don't respond and meet that need, how can you say the love of God dwells in you? How could you say that? Because real Christians learn to love like God loved. Turn with me if you would. If you still have Ephesians open, that's a good place. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. This is what Christianity should be all about. I talk about us not being hypocritical, not being a walking contradiction. The Bible would expect that you as a Bible reader, as a Christian, would do what this passage says, which is the essence. You want a summary of the Christian life? Here it is. Verse 1, what does sanctification look like? What does the Christian life look like? Here it comes. Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimic God. Be like God. That's a Greek word, mimetai. We get the word mimic from that. Keep, keep mimicking God. What you see in God, do that in your life. As beloved children, look how loved you are. So you ought to love. Verse 2, and walk in love. Paul loved that word, walk. Make that the manner of your life. Make it to where the people at work, the people in your neighborhood, people in your family, they see it as a regular pattern of your life. You love, you care about people. As, here's the gold standard again, Christ loved us. And he didn't just love us with some disposition tucked away in his heart and he felt good feelings. That's not the point. He gave himself up for us. That was a painful thing. A fragrant offering, here's a painful word, and sacrifice to God. He loved us with a sacrifice. I'm supposed to mimic God. I want to be the kind of Christian that reflects 
the inexpressible gift that God has given me. So I want to have the same disposition toward others that God has toward me and sacrifice so much for me. And I'm glad that in verse 13, if you look back at our passage, it's printed on your worksheet, it starts with this word service. It says that, service. And again, unless you have your Greek New Testament out, and some of you might, you'll see that word service is the word that is transliterated in other parts of Scripture as the word deacon, transliterated. Deacon, you know the word. We're talking about someone who serves in the church. He's called a diakonos, and it comes into English as deacon. And you say, oh, I know who he is. If it starts in Acts 3, learning about the deacons, they go and serve tables. They get sweaty trying to make sure on the worship day everyone's getting cared for, and they're putting out food, and they're serving water, and they're washing feet. They're servants. Well, this whole contribution that they're about to talk about, the generosity of the contribution in the bottom of verse 3, is described with this one word, service. Service. Which is helpful for me to remember that just like God loving us, it was costly and hard. And Jesus even wrestled with it in the garden like, oh man, let this cup pass for me. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to power through this. I'm going to push through this. That I know this, when I'm called to reflect God's love for others and give and sacrifice, it's going to be hard. It will not be easy. My flesh is going to fight against it. So you're going to have to push yourself. Matter of fact, let's put it that way. Number two, you need to push yourself to give generously. All giving, real giving, sacrificial giving, you're going to feel it. It isn't just going to feel good. If it just feels good, then we're not pushing into the kind of generosity, the kind of sacrifice that God has asked us for. That he says, reflect this in your life. There should be needs that you see in the people that you love this Christmas and say, I'm going to give until it hurts. Jesus gave us a great little line here. And if you know the context, don't narc me because I know the context too. I get it. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and their giving. They blew the trumpets and they threw their money in the till and they want to make sure everyone knew how much they were giving. I get that. That's the original context. But Jesus gives us a statement that can be applied in a few different ways, which is helpful. When he says this, when you guys give, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Don't let each hand know what it's doing. Now, the context is him saying, don't get all ostentatious about your giving and generosity. Not about recognition, because then you'll have your reward in full. Give in secret, don't worry. But then it gets down to, I don't even want one of your hands to know what the other hand is doing. And, and, and you can picture it this way. I can gather with one hand, and you know, I gather all that stuff, and I make that money, and I get that rest, and I get that energy, and I get that time, and I collect it all here. And then the Bible's calling me to reflect the sacrificial love of Christ to be the most loving, caring, generous person to other people. And now it's going to take the resources of my life and give them away. Guess what this hand, as it gives it away, what this hand thinks of that? No, I got all this for us. And you're now giving it away. And I love the way that that great little image of don't let the right hand know what the left is. Just, just, you need to just know it's going to be an internal battle here. And there's a focus so often on what I'm going to lose if I give this. What if I stay four or five hours here and care for someone? What am I missing? What am I? You can focus on that, but then you're letting this hand tell this hand what to do, and that's not what the Bible says you should do. And when you say, there's a need, this gal needs a car. I could literally give her this car and forget the, the, the $8,000 or $10,000 I might have gotten out of it, but she can use it. In our small group, I'm just going to sign the title of this car over to her. She needs it. She doesn't have one. She's Great. I could do that. But you know what? I can, I'm thinking over here of the money I was going to get and what I was going to do with that. And so you, you've got this battle going on between the hand that gets and keeps and the hand that gives and, and releases. 
And I love the way Jesus said, just stop, stop. Just Sometimes you're going to have to, like Jekyll and Hyde, just say, I'm not going to even tell the other side of myself what I'm doing. Give. Be generous. You're going to have to push yourself to do this. You're going to have to power through it. It's spiritual work, but it's hard. As a matter of fact, verse 12 helps us with this because the same word is used. I don't want to get too much into language here, but it is interesting. If you are a Greek student and you know the Greek New Testament, you look at this great phrase here in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, which is exactly the recapitulation of what we're seeing in verse 13. He's talking about it, but instead of using the whole phrase, ministry of this service, he uses the phrase just the approval of this service. Well, if you think service, service, well, that must be the same Greek word. Well, that would be wrong. In the Greek New Testament, the word that's translated ministry is the word that we get the word deacon from. That root is the one that is now translated in verse 13, service. But the problem is there's two words that are often translated service put back to back. And that's the word service in verse 12. The service of this service, well, he wasn't going to translate it that way. There are two different words. So he says, the translators in English, the translating committee says, let's just translate it this way, the ministry of this service. Well, both of those speak to service. But the one that is used in this passage in verse 12 that translates service is the word that is used, transliterates into our English as liturgical. It's the word that we translate liturgical. And liturgical, that Greek word, is the word that is used in the Old Testament when they took the Hebrew Old Testament and turned it into the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And they translated that word to describe how all the priests and Levites worked so hard on the Sabbath. Sabbath, by the way, is the word rest. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. Well, guess who wasn't resting on the Sabbath? The Levites. They were working. They were sweating. They were setting up the tabernacle. They were attending to the fire. They were baking the bread. They had the heat of the big hibachi that they were sacrificing animals on. They were cutting the throats of animals. They were doing all these things with a lot of work. Guess who went home tired on the Sabbath? The Levites. They worked. They sweated. They did the hard work. And yet it was a holy work and a sacred work. And in this passage, it combines these two words. It's like serving and serving. It's like the work of, of, of holy work. It's the, the labor of the holy work. And you're going to feel that way about giving if you do it right. If it's easy, there's a problem. It should push you beyond your limits of comfort. Real giving. That you'll lean back at the end of the day like the pastors and kids workers and leaders in our church at the end of a Sunday put their feet up. Hopefully they feel like I feel. We poured ourselves out today, but it was good work. And even when you give, it's going to feel like that. It was hard. It would have been easier for me to rest. It would have been nice just to go to church, go out after church for a brunch and hang out and play some games with the kids. And then I'd get into bed early after reading the blogs and just a nice day. No, but it's a hard day. Pouring yourself out. Even at Christmas. The Bible says more blessed to give than to receive. At the end of all of the difficulty and struggle and service of giving, the Bible says there's something good about that work. It's liturgical work. It's, it's religious and sacred work, but it's work. You're supposed to love people with our stuff, right? That's what 1 John 3 is all about. But it's more than that, and I love the fact that the word service is here because it reminds me it's more than just a contribution of money. I talk about it around here a lot, you know, extra mile, extra dollar, extra hour. But remember that when we talk about giving this Christmas, it's more than just you giving your money to people or your material resources to people, which I'm saying absolutely is at the heart of this passage. You need to be generous. It's not even about the church, although that's a good thing too. But I'm saying beyond your money, you need to look at the other things that are involved. 
Just like the sweat of the liturgical priests, if you will, of the Old Testament. There needs to be that sense in which I say, how can I give my attention? How can I give my energy? How can I give my talents? How can I give here in my life the kind of work for someone that would do them good? Well, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Unless you're tuned in to their needs. Not just their needs, but their interests. The things that would make their lives better. Most of us don't think that way as much as we should. Let me do something for you. It's happened to me recently. I focused on it so much in my own Bible study. Is a connection of two things in Philippians 2 that I haven't seen, or I've seen it, but I haven't really pondered it the way I have recently. And that is that when Paul is presenting the greatest Christological section of, we call it the kenosis, where Christ lays aside his glory to come and accomplish our redemption. I know this, and I've taught it many times, and you know this, that that whole statement of Christological sacrifice is put in the context of Paul's pastoral concern that they would not just look out for their own interests, Philippians, but look out for the interests of others. Now, you know that, right? He starts with the fact there needs to be more loving sacrifice. There needs to be more generosity and giving and love in the church of Philippi. And then he puts Christ in the middle of it all. Look how Christ did it. This mind should be in you just like it was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid it all aside. He came in the form of a servant and he served us. And he says, that should be happening. Now, you know all that. That's not what I'm talking about. But do you know in the next paragraph, he starts to talk about his buddies in ministry. And he talks about a few of them. But there's one that I've resonated with so much lately I mean, I hope I'm starting to reflect it more and more. It's a picture of his buddy, Timothy, his understudy. And he says this. Matter of fact, it's worth looking at. If you're deft in your scriptures, you can get there quickly. Philippians chapter two. He says, I want to send Timothy to you. We got no texting. We got no email. We got no way to get mail quickly to someone. You have to send a messenger. So he's going to send Timothy, his trusted messenger, his understudy, his new pastor that is going to be filling the pulpit in Ephesus soon. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And if you look at it in verse 19, if you're there, he says, I hope I send him to him so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. So he's going to come, he's going to get news, he's going to send news back, and I'm going to be feeling like you're making progress in the Christian life, like you're caring for each other the way you should. Then he says this, verse 20, for I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ." That word is exactly what he says up in verse 4, and that is you shouldn't just be looking out for your interests. You should be looking out for the interests of others. Well, here's a guy I can guarantee you is giving, even though it's not articulated in this passage. Timothy must be a sacrificial giver because it all starts the way he starts this picture of sacrifice for others in Christ, and that is his interest was on us. He was attuned to our needs. He knew what would strengthen us, what would help us, what would meet our needs, and Timothy was there. And I love the fact that he's head and shoulders, a standout among the others that he works with. He says, listen, I'm telling you, Timothy, I have no one like him. This guy is a standout who will, I love this phrase, genuinely, sincerely, fully, completely. He really cares about your welfare. He wants what's good for you. He looks out for your interests. So I'm gonna send my number one guy out there and I can't wait to hear back from him about how you're doing. And I sure hope you're doing a lot more of what Timothy does because I look around and I see this, people just concerned for their own interests. I don't want to be a downer in this second point because I feel like we're lifting kind of the tone of this sermon up a little in the second point, but it is true, isn't it? You find a lot of people today just 
even Christians who say they're Christians and they're going to love God and they're going to love people the way God told them. Really? Until it's too costly, till it's too hard, till I don't feel like it. A lot of people just looking out for their own interests. They'll give as long as it's not a real pain, as long as it's not a big sacrifice. They'll stay as, you know, a certain amount of time. They'll go a certain amount of miles, but they're not willing to drop everything and go if it's too far. They're not going to stay if it's too late. They're not going to give if it's too much. Paul says, I got Timothy who I know cares about you. And people who really love and really care are tuned into the needs of others. You got to push yourself to get there. Because every morning you get up and care about your teeth and your hair and you wash your face. I know that we're designed to care for ourselves. But the Bible says you got to love your neighbors, you love yourself. You got to care about them. And you should be looking around your neighborhood. You should look looking around your office. If you're going back to work this week, if if, if you're looking around your extended family and say, I want to meet their needs the way I'd want mine met. Paul said to the Galatians, I know you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if it were possible. You feel like that with some people that you love, that you say, I care so much about them. Paul had some kind of problem with his eyes, obviously. And they were like, oh, if it would help, I would take my eyes and I would give them to you. Paul was praising them for that. By the way, none of this that I'm talking about works if it's compulsion. And maybe you feel like this sermon's been a stick. I'm goading you. Go, give, give, give. It's going to be hard. Push, push, push. I, I get that's the words. But the word generosity really can't be used and employed unless we're talking about someone who's doing it willingly. And that's the context. Chapter 9, verse 7, I'm supposed to give as a cheerful giver, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. And in chapter 8, he talks about the Macedonian Christians. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this. That's willing kind of giving. No one says about the taxpayers, the taxpayers sure were generous to the IRS this year. No one uses the word generosity for that, right? Because it's all under compulsion. No one's writing offering checks as, as free will offerings to the IRS. It's compulsion. And yet they gave a lot of money to the IRS this year. All of this, if it's going to fit under the rubric of generosity means that you're giving them a gift of a good attitude. Let me speak to that for just a quick second. I mean, what kind of gift is it if it's given begrudgingly? What kind of gift is it if it's really just you're trying to tell everyone what a big sacrifice is? You want to make sure everyone sees what a big sacrifice is? Now we're back to the Pharisees again. I want to make sure you know how much this is costing me to be here with you for that extra hour, go that extra mile, or spend that extra dollar. And some of us subtly try to sneak that in because our attitude is not where it needs to be. Push yourself to give generously, and the word generously doesn't work unless your attitude is good. Do it because you've received that inexpressible gift. You know what it is to be the recipient of pure grace. Lastly, look at verses 13 and 14 and just look through, glance through this and see if you can't. All the good that comes from this. I mean, we got a lot of words going on in verses 13 and 14, piled one upon the next, but all of these, really all of these, are the good result of what happens when people start giving generously to each other. When they start meeting needs generously, when they start staying extra hours generously. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens. First of all, look at the first word, their approval of this service. The approval of this service. 
the approval, when other people approve of the service, when other people say, this is a, a good thing, what you've done here is a good thing. And you sit back and say, it is a good thing. And you start recognizing, wow, you know what? I gave, I went the extra mile, stayed the extra hour, spent the extra, I did that. And you know what? I see that I did it because I cared about them. And you look in the mirror and you say, I did something out of love for them. And you start saying, wow, I guess that's what first John is all about. I know God's love dwells in me because I have a love for the brothers and I realize that my gifts and actions and sacrifice for them proves that I love them. And you sit back and I go, wow, I guess I am a Christian. I guess God's love dwells in me. I can see God at work in me. And you know, when I wasn't a Christian, I don't think I would have done that. I don't think I would have gone that far. I don't think I would have taken such an interest in them. You start to see that God is at work in your life. You have a kind of extraordinary giving, a a kind of extraordinary generosity that the world doesn't have. And we start filling up that reputation that we're supposed to be the most loving, caring, generous people in our society. And you sit back and say, wow, I get that. You have assurance. There's five things in this passage. I'll just give two words for each, but let's start with this one. When it comes to the good, let's put it this way first. Number three, know the good of giving. There's a lot of good that comes from you being a generous giving person. And the first thing that comes, I'll put it this way, letter A, is greater assurance. You have an assurance that you are a Christian. A guy this week asked me on Thursday, I'm struggling with knowing if I'm really saved. I have that happen, I don't know, twice a month probably. I'm struggling to know. I mean, I feel like I've done the right things. I've repented of my sins. I put my trust in Christ. I just want to know that if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, let's look at your giving. That's one thing we could look at. What kind of person are you? Have you seen generosity change? When you start seeing real sacrificial giving flowing from your life, that is a sign that God is at work in you and it proves your love. Matter of fact, you can glance up to chapter 8. You want the same exact word that we have here. The approval of service is translated this way in verse 8, chapter 8. It's translated to prove. To prove the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. How do you know your love is genuine? Well, it's measured by how much it costs you. When you love people that are easy to love, Jesus says, what credit is that to you? Everyone can love the lovable. It's about you pushing beyond what is reasonable to love in a sacrificial way that proves that you have the love of God dwelling in your life. As it says in verse 24 of chapter 8, give proof before the churches of your love. How do you know you love your brother? How do you know you love your sisters in Christ? How do you know? Do you do stuff that's just easy to do? Or do you do the hard stuff? You give. Well, the good of giving, if you do it, you have greater assurance that you're really a Christian. And it says by their approval of this service, they're going to approve Certainly if they do, you might sit back and realize that you approve. They will glorify God. And that's always a good thing. And if you want to explain that, I guess you look up at verse 12 because he's just said the same thing in verse 12. It's just a different word for it. I mean, there's a repetition, verses 12 and 13. But he says, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I know this. People glorify God by giving thanks to God. Ten words, five points. Here's the first one. Greater assurance, number two, letter B. We're going to have more thanksgiving. And that God always loves. You start giving generously more this year than you did last year. Here's what's going to happen. More people will say to God, thank you. My needs are met. My life is comforted. My life has what I need. I'm moving in a direction of seeing the love of Christ affirmed in my life from other people. They start rejoicing and their life toward God gets more grateful. It gets more worshipful. It glorifies God more And the recipients of these gifts, they start to glorify God. Why? Because they see your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. Look at the middle of verse 13. Because of your submission, you're really doing the hard stuff 
under the confession of the gospel of Christ. You say with your mouth that you're a recipient of the grace of God. Now you're proving it by what you do. And you know what people stand back and do? We can unpack the word approval. If I don't just look at yourself feeling the sense of assurance, you can look now at people saying, listen, I see that you're really practicing what you preach. And the onlooking world sees that as well. I'll put it this way, letter C. There is an improved reputation. Improved reputation. There is an improved reputation that we are not the greedy people. Oh, I saw a fish on the plumber's truck. You know, I know what Christians are like. They're greedy, shoddy work. They don't really care. Listen, when Christians get really generous with their time and their effort and their money, and they start living differently than the rest of the world, our corporate reputation moves forward. When they show up in Jerusalem with that gift from the Macedonian Christians and the Achaean Christians, including the Corinthians, who have the capacity to give more than any other church probably in the region, and they come and give that gift, not only... Do the people that send it feel an assurance that they're really expressing the love of God? Not only do the recipients thank God for it, but the onlooking world and even the people in that church go, wow, these people really mean it. They really do love me more than they love money. They really do have this commitment to following and imitating the sacrifice of Christ. Wow, the reputation improves. People see that we're not crooks and we're not greedy. We're not in it for the money. Prove that, would you? By showing that you love people more than you love money? Fourthly, verse 14, while they long for you. I mean, this may sound so base and I can't help it, but you know what? People who feel like they're being generously loved, people who feel like they really are being cared for and they're having brothers and sisters generously, lavishly giving to them, meeting their needs. Guess what? They long for those people. They want to be with those people. That word, by the way, that is used there in verse 14 is the word Paul uses over in Philippians chapter one, verse eight, when he says, I translated this way in the ESV, I yearn for you. I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You know what it does? I'll put it this way. Letter D, it enriches our relationships. If we start seeing mutual generosity, not only in our outside relationships, but certainly within the household of faith, our inside relationships, guess what happens to our relationships? It gets better. If right now you know that I love you enough to give and you love me enough to give and there's a kind of generous sacrifice for one another, what happens to the church? People love and long for each other. They want to be with each other. Our fellowship gets better. Very simple here. Next phrase, look at it. And they pray for you. Well, they long for you, they want to be with you and they pray for you. Let's put it down that way, added prayers. I know in our church, I got a, I got a list of people on my prayer list. It's pretty long. And I pray for those people. But guess what? When there's a lot of generosity happening in those relationships, man, I don't need a prayer list anymore. I mean, I start thinking about those people and I start praying for those people because I know there's a kind of love and generosity going back and forth in those relationships. Greater assurance, more thanksgiving, improved reputation, enriched relationships, added prayers. People who really love people pray. Over in Colossians 4, Paul speaks of Epaphras you know your Bibles, you think of Epaphras, I, think, I hope you think of this passage. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. I love that. Are there people that really struggle in their prayer life for your good? Probably people you've been generous to. I mean, that's just a natural, it may seem base, it may seem like, you know, quid pro quo, it may seem selfish, but that's how it works. The more generous you are to people, the more they pray for you. And we need that prayer 
We need it now more than ever to be mutually supporting one another in ardent prayers, wrestling and struggling on behalf of people in this church and elsewhere because of your prayers, in your prayers, for your good. (laughs) Over 100 years ago, Henry Ford was traveling to Ireland. That's where his roots were, apparently. And he'd made it big in America with his assembly line and his Ford automobile products. When he was there, of course, people knew the rich man had come to town and there was a board of directors that decided to try and get an audience with Henry Ford and they ran an orphanage. They were the directors of an orphanage. And of course, they relied like all nonprofits. That's what we call them today. They rely on the donations of people and the orphans certainly aren't paying. So they, they're like, uh, hey, would you meet with us to share our vision, our ministry here, and would you give? So Henry Ford hears them out, willingly meets with them, and writes them a generous check. Now, this is over 100 years ago, so this was historically 2,000 sterling pounds back in the day. They're on the euro now, I know, but back in the day. And if you do buy inflation and you just track that out, if you want a, a gauge to know what that might feel like for someone today, that was like a $75,000 check. So that's a pretty good donation just for one meeting, right? Got a $75,000 check. Well, that was such a big gift. And of course, the orphanage was so glad that they received this gift that, I mean, word got out. And the next morning, the paper had actually written an article about Henry Ford coming to town and giving a donation to the orphanage. The problem is there was a typo in the headline. And it said, Henry Ford gives 20,000 pounds to the orphanage. 20,000 pounds. Which, by the way, add a zero. That's like you not giving... I mean, you just gave a $75,000 check. You're a rich businessman. And they just reported that you gave three quarters of a million dollars to their orphanage. So word went out. The director of the orphanage, of course, saw that. Everyone starts calling, wow, Henry Ford gave you three quarters of a million dollars, $750,000. And he goes, no, 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 he didn't give us... He didn't give us 20,000 pounds. He gave us, he gave us 2,000 pounds. Of course, he was embarrassed because everyone thought that he was way more generous than he was. So he sends over to Henry Ford and he was able to get a second audience with him and the director comes in and says, hey, I am so sorry that word is out that you gave us 20,000 pounds when you only gave 2,000. I'm going right to the editor. That's where I'm going next to the paper. They're going to publish a correction and I'm going to make sure that they get that straightened out. Now, Henry Ford's got a choice right then, doesn't he? What does he do? He's being hailed in Ireland as this amazingly generous man. And he can say to the director, yeah, you're right. Go, go fix that. I mean, let's mitigate that reputation that I have that I didn't earn. Or he can do what he did. Look it up. Here's what he does. He writes a check there in that moment for 18,000 pounds so that his giving can match his reputation. I don't know much about Henry Ford. I know he walked to church four miles every Sunday and at least in his younger years. But what a good model for Christians. If you open up the Bible and actually read it, it says that we're supposed to be the most loving, caring, giving, generous, sacrificial people in your neighborhood, in your office. And that's the reputation and we can go into the Bible and we can tell people, well, you know, uh, we've got to be prudent. We've got to save for the future. We've got to get our family needs together. And you know, the Bible says in Proverbs, of course, you've got to save. And you can, make, you can mitigate your reputation or you can lavish 
the generosity on other people saying, yeah, I know. We're going to try to measure up, close the gap, not by trying to lower our reputation, but by raising our generosity. I would invite you this Christmas to think seriously about how you're giving. It's not about church budgets. It's about you just being someone who's willing to give. When you see a need and you go the extra mile and you stay the extra hour and you spend the extra dollar because God has called you as a recipient of the inexpressible gift of salvation to freely and generously and liberally give and not let your other hand know what you're doing. Give this Christmas, that'll honor the Lord and it will increase thanksgiving, the thanksgivings of many people around us. Let's pray. God, as Christmas approaches and we can think practically about a lot of things like we don't have money to give anymore and I've already bought presents I can't afford and my credit card's gonna be so stacked up with debt. I pray we'd realize that this goes far beyond just our money, although it starts there. You can look at our stuff. We have a lot of things in our lives that we could love people with, our homes, our cars, our, our living rooms, our furniture, our extra refrigerator. There's so much we could do to love those around us, to encourage those around us, to strengthen those around us. And God, we need your spirit to help us to generate a kind of lavish generosity that is not innate. It's not part of our fleshly disposition. It's not the way we're designed as fallen creatures. We're designed to keep and to hoard and protect and to make sure we got enough for ourselves. God, sometimes you break into our day and say, like you did in Matthew 19, just give it away. You looked at the rich young ruler and said, give it away. God, I know you're not calling us to be imprudent. You're calling us to be prudent. I get all that. I can read the Proverbs, I know. But maybe there's an opportunity today, this week, this year in, to do something lavish and extravagant, something that would actually hurt, something that would be a sacrifice, that would bring honor and glory to you. God, help us to rethink our giving because we've been recipients of such great gifts from you. God, we thank you for this reminder from a historical situation where needs were there in front of the Corinthians and they needed to reach out and meet them. And I pray we'd look for needs today. Let us be like Timothy. May people say, I got no one else like this guy in my office or in my family. He has a genuinely, genuine concern for the welfare of people. Make that true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.